Well, our passage this morning is Colossians chapter 9. There's only four chapters in Colossians, so it couldn't be Colossians chapter 9. It's Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 through 14. So if you have your Bible, please turn there with me to Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. We are exploring Paul's letter to this church in this uh, little town of Colossae. Last week, we saw the first part of a prayer that Paul and his friends would pray for that church. They regularly had this diet of praying for the church in Colossae. And these were people that Paul had never actually personally met before, but he still prayed for them. And he prayed that they would abound in things like faith, hope, and love. He prayed that they would have the faith to believe in the work and in the promises of Jesus Christ offered to them in the gospel. He gave thanks for the eternal hope that Jesus had accomplished and applied to them in the gospel. And he gave thanks for the love that that church was expressing towards one another that was grounded in the hope that God had provided for them. And so we discovered that those three things, faith, hope, and love, are gifts from God. They come from God to his people, to this church in Colossae and to us. And they are fundamental to Christian maturity. The cultivation of those things is fundamental to growth and grace. Today, this passage that we're going to look at is the second part of the prayer. It's the second part of what Paul is requesting God for with regard to the Colossians. And I think that you will see that it not only pertains to that church, but it pertains to us right here in Biloxi, Mississippi as well. So, with all that in view, let's take a moment now to read God's Word from Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. This is what it says. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is God's Word to us this morning. As I was studying this passage this week, as I was reading over it several times in a row, trying to figure out what it was all about, I reached the end point and I wondered if God actually answered this prayer. This is something that Paul and his friends say that they prayed regularly about. They prayed without ceasing. It was a common part of their day-to-day life, that they would pray these things, would be the case in this church in Colossae, and I wonder if it ever happened. Because we know that there was this church up the road, not too far up the road, in a town called Laodicea. And when you get to the book of the Revelation, you discover that they were chastised for being very lukewarm. So why would that not have been the case in this church in Colossae? It makes you kind of wonder about prayer. If it actually does anything. Is prayer not just some kind of sanctified way of talking to yourself? Making yourself feel better in the midst of uncertain circumstances. How do you know that God actually hears our prayers? Or that he, if he hears them, that he answers them? Maybe you believe that God hears and answers prayer, but you struggle with the whole idea that if God already knows everything, if he's already reigning over everything, 
then, then why even bother to pray? What difference does it actually make? If you are an honest person and you have a sensitivity to prayer at all, even a little bit of one, you've probably asked yourself those questions before. Is prayer even worthwhile? It seems like a wildly unproductive thing to do. It's one of the most difficult things in the Christian life, I think. It's one of the things that I personally struggle with the most and that maybe you do as well. Uh, But I think there are a lot of reasons for that, a lot of reasons why we struggle in prayer. And I don't think we need to go into all the reasons for that, but I know that God has not directed us to pray just in order to make us feel guilty or, or numb or hopeless. It seems like when you actually plumb the depths of Scripture and when you discover what God is like, you discover that prayer is kind of a natural aspect of an intimate relationship with God. It is part of the ongoing communication with a God that you love and that loves you and that you desire and that has pursued you. It's not so much seen as a Christian duty that you just click off of the checkoff list. It's part of the natural rhythm of the Christian life, of someone's relationship with God, just like communication is with any ordinary relationship that you have. I think when you look at Paul's prayer here, it's important to notice that he seems to really know God. He seems to really know Him. He seems to desire God, to want to be with God, to want to communicate with God. He seems to enjoy God. Whatever it is that we're praying about or praying for is a a great indication of what our priorities are in life. What you lift up in prayer is an indication of what is most important to you. So when you pray regularly that just that certain circumstances would go well, what you're really asking God and believing about God and prioritizing for your life is your own comfort. If you rarely spend time thanking God for His goodness to us and praising God for who He is, and all you do is ask Him to make your life more comfortable, then you're seeing God maybe as a glorified sugar daddy. You know, as, as the grandfather in the sky whose purpose in life is really to give you your best life now. I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I think that we all have that tendency. And I don't think that the, the Bible is telling us that we shouldn't pray for sick people. We shouldn't pray for those who are in need. We shouldn't pray for very practical, tangible things and that His will would be done on earth just as it is in heaven. The purpose isn't to guilt you. The purpose is, is to help you understand that there is much, much more to our relationship with God than just asking Him to improve our circumstances to make our lives more comfortable. God has higher priorities for our lives than that. And He wants us to see that. I think we see it in this particular prayer. And that's what Paul understands. Because in this particular prayer, you notice that he's not praying in generalities and he's not praying for more superficial things. What you discover in this prayer is that Paul was a man who knew God well enough and delighted in God to such a degree that he knew what God's priorities were for himself and for the church. He saw his life, and I think this is something that's reflected in this prayer, he saw his life through the grid of God's glory. His his chief priority in life was seeing to it that God would appear more glorious and more beautiful and more valuable than anything else in the world. 
And so he wanted this church to know God for who he truly is. And when he prays for this church, he has that objective in view. That's the objective that he has. He wants the church to enjoy God because if they're enjoying God, they're going to be glorifying God. The two just go hand in hand. If God is going to be shown to be beautiful in their lives and in our lives, then we're going to have to internalize His will. We're going to need an understanding of God and of ourselves and of the world in which He lives and it's going to have to be shaped by His wisdom and by an understanding of His will. We're going to have to be people that are reflecting upon His character, living that out in our ordinary aspects of lives. And we're going to need to be empowered to do so, because naturally we don't have the power to live out the Christian life. We're going to need Him to do His work in us so that He would be glorified and so that we would enjoy Him. And that's the thing that Paul is praying about here. That's what he wants to see in this church in Colossae. And it just seems like when you read Scripture, that falls very much in line with the priorities that God has for the church. There are at least three specific requests in this prayer. And I just want to look at them with you. The the first request that Paul makes to God on behalf of the Colossians is that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. That's what we see here, that they would be filled with the knowledge of His will and that that knowledge would drench them with spiritual wisdom and understanding. You know, one of the things that I remember about being in seminary was how confidently my friends and I would talk about how we could grow healthy churches. And we would armchair quarterback churches. We would criticize preaching and criticize ministries and say that they should do this and not do that and the whole bit. And we were these 28-year-old schmucks who didn't know anything. And then we got out and we actually got into ministry. We realized we didn't have a flaming clue what we were talking about back when we were in seminary. And even if we were right, we had no idea how to pull it off. We, we, We came to see our own ignorance. I remember seeing kids being in restaurants or stores who were misbehaving, getting all out of control. And I would think to myself, what is wrong with these parents? Why can't they get their kid to just behave while they're sitting at the dinner table or they're standing in line at the grocery store? And then I had my own kids. And I realized that they don't just come with an on and off switch. It's not the way that it works. What's the point? The point is that the the more mature you get and the more you know, the less you realize that you actually know. The more you see your own brokenness. And the point is that as we live as fallen people living living in a broken down world, we are confused we don't see things the way that God sees them. There's a, there's a blur to our vision, a blur to our understanding of what God is about and what His will is and about what His priorities are. And that comes from a lack of knowledge, a personal knowledge of Him. It's all blurred because of our sin and our brokenness and our depravity. And so what we're prone to do in response to that is to just gobble up whatever the world throws at us. All kinds of godless understanding, godless knowledge, and we justify it as being flavored with Christianity and we just move ahead. 
That's what you and I are prone to do in so many respects in our lives. And Paul knows that. Something that Paul understands, which is why that he prays that this church would be full, that they would be literally overflowing with the knowledge of God's will, the knowledge of God, and that they would be spiritually wise and understanding people. Ultimately, when you just get peel back the layers of this prayer, you discover that he wants the Colossians to really know God. He wants them not to have this superficial, go-through-the-motions understanding of God. He wants them to really know God to the point where God's desires become their desires and God's will becomes their will and they start to see things the way that God sees them. You know, a, a great thing for you to pray sometime today and throughout the course of this week for First Presbyloxy, for your friends, for your family, even for yourself, is that you would be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You don't know what to pray for? That's something that you can pray for. Because the fundamental reason why we make a mess out of our lives and a mess out of the church is that we are imbibing the garbage of this world and we're calling it wisdom. We're calling it a wise way to live, whether it takes the shape of overt, blatant sin or whether it takes the shape of seemingly innocuous, middle-class American family values. Being filled with the knowledge of His will does not just mean that we are good conservative people. That's not what that means. It means that we are being transformed by the renewing of our mind so that our mind becomes so much more like Christ. And that in response, we live so much more reflective of who He actually is. And it tells me that at the end of the day, what we really need is God. We need God. We need to know Him. We need to love Him and desire Him and treasure Him. And God, here's the thing, God has to make that happen in our lives. He has to make that happen. He has to instill in us a desire for Him. I can't give you five easy steps as to how to love God. I mean, yes, you need to attend to the Word. You need to pray. You need fellowship. Yes to all of that. Yes to all of that. But you're never even going to care about that and your heart is never going to be inflamed for Him unless He's the one that does it. He has to pursue us. He has to take the initiative. And He has to inflame our hearts. That's what we need to always be mindful of. And that's the, the only way in which that's going to happen is if we beg God to give us a delight for Him. If we make that a regular part of our daily diet. When was the last time you prayed that for yourself? When was the last time you prayed that for yourself or for your your children or your family? What about for First Press? What about for our church? When was the last time you, you prayed that, that you begged God that He would fill us up with Himself and that He would give us a knowledge of His will, greater spiritual wisdom and understanding? That, that would be a great thing to make a commitment to do this week, to pray that every day, to, to pray that you would be filled with that, before you begin to even pray for other things. Because you know what the result will be 
in individuals and in a church that is full of his will, a knowledge of his will, of understanding, of wisdom. You know what a church is going to look like like that? It's going to look so much more like Jesus. It's going to look so much more like we actually know Jesus Christ. And we treasure Him. Our lives are going to be holy lives. They're going to be reflective of who He actually is. And that the Holy Spirit is actually alive and well in our lives. This, this past week, I was talking to a guy who happened to ask me what I did for a living. And when you're a minister, it's not like just being asked what you do for a living. Because when you tell people you're a minister, they're either going to emotionally dump every single thing in their life upon you, or they may run for the hills. So it, it could be either of those two things, but I was sitting next to this guy on a flight, so it was kind of a captive audience. He couldn't go anywhere once he asked that question. So he asked me, and he was a friendly guy. I don't think he was a believer by any stretch of the imagination, but he was curious as to what ministers actually do and things of that nature. But he was bemoaning the fact that if we are a Christian nation, why we do so many of these horrible things and those horrible things and why we allow all these injustices and why people just live such morally beyond the pale kind of lives. And what I told him was, oh, I'm just not so sure that we are a Christian nation. The the, the statistics say that 80-something percent of America is Christian, but, I mean, give me a break. If you believe that, I've got a nice piece of oceanfront property in North Dakota to sell you. There's just no way that's the case, because if, if people really did treasure Jesus Christ, and they did follow after Him, then there would be a godliness that would overflow as a result of that. There would be a difference in the way in which the church lives and the way in which the country lives if we actually believed this. Because Christians are people whose lives look different, at least to some degree, however imperfect. They look like we've been with Jesus. They have that flavor. The the aroma of our lives is is Christ-like. You know, we mimic people that we spend the most time with, right? We mimic them. We imitate them. If you spend a lot of time with somebody, your life is going to look so much like theirs. Well, the same is true with our relationship with God, isn't it? The more intimate that we are with God, the more we spend with Him, the more we desire Him, the more our life is going to reflect His character. There's going to be something that resembles His holiness and His justice and His goodness and His truth, even though we're still total mess-ups. And so the fact of the matter is this. In order for that to happen, He has to change our hearts. The, the, The pulling yourself up by the bootstraps brand of Christianity is not Christianity. He has to do it. He has to give us a passion for His glory and His holiness. And He has to enable us to produce the fruit that He desires to have happen. And so, before we pray for any other temporary changes, before we pray for all of those other really important things, I think what we need to pray for is that He would conform us more to Himself. That He would make our lives mirror Him more truly, and that we would become less and less tainted by worldliness. 
by things that have nothing to do with him. That's something that Paul prays about for this Colossian church. Because he knows that with the false teaching that comes in and the the dangers and toils and snares of the world, they're going to get distracted in every way. So he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and that they would have spiritual understanding and wisdom. That's the first thing that he prays. But then he moves on to a second thing. And you find it in verse 11. This is what he prays. He says that he prays that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. He talks about joy so much in this letter, which is strange because he's locked up in prison in a musty, damp, lonely prison in Rome. And he's writing this letter and he's talking about joy all the time. He's talking about endurance and with power and giving thanks and all of these things. Paul was a victim of massive persecution that was really about to spill over in a huge way. When you look at the first three centuries of Christianity, the church was radically persecuted. And even though it was radically persecuted, churches were cropping up all over the place. So Paul's tasting a bit of that. In just a few years after Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, there was a huge fire in the city of Rome. And there was tremendous, tremendous suffering that resulted from that. The emperor in that day was a man named Nero. And a lot of people thought that Nero actually, in some respects intentionally, burned the city of Rome so that he could redesign it according to the way that he wanted it to be. But Nero, as a good politician does, deflected criticism. And who did he deflect it to? He deflected it to the Christians, of course. And that led to the very first widespread persecution of Christians. And so there was a historian at the time, a man by the name of Tacitus, that described what happened there to the Christians. And this is what he said. He says, To get rid of the report that Nero burned the city, he fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on the Christians. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or they were nailed to crosses, or they were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when the daylight had expired. A nightly illumination that you could see for miles away. The persecution of Christians at that particular point in time was unbelievable. And the gospel spread like wildfire despite that persecution. And it didn't end there. In fact, in the past 100 years alone, there have been more Christians that have been martyred for their faith than in any of the centuries combined. It's still going on all the time. Thankfully, thankfully, we don't have to worry about being killed for our faith in America right now. But the persecution that we get and that will come in the coming years will more than likely take the shape of us being so ostracized to the fringes of society for having the audacity to believe in an exclusive need for Jesus Christ, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father 
but him, and we will be deemed as the most intolerant, bigoted people on the planet and as colossal fools and idiots for even believing in any of this nonsense. And that's not what's coming. That's what's already here. And so we need to be prepared for a persecution of that danger. And how are we going to do it? Well, if we are linguine-spined people who don't know the will of God, who don't desire God and care much about Him, then we are going to get chewed up and spit out by the world. If, if we live the cruise control version of the Christian life, we're going to succumb to whatever the latest trend is to whatever the way the prevailing winds of the world are going. And we're certainly not going to have the strength to endure and persevere or have the Spirit of Christ, which was patient enough to say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. We won't have any of that. So what we need, church, what we need more than better political leadership in Washington or in Jackson or have a more comfortable or prosperous life. What we need more than any of that is to have our hearts shaped and moved by the fact that God has qualified His people to lay hold of an, inter- of an eternal inheritance. That, that He has qualified us for that and that He has strengthened us. That that we lay hold of His strength. And we have to remember this again. He's the one that strengthens us. The power that we are going to have to live the Christian life comes from outside of us, not from within us. That's why He prays not that we would strengthen ourselves, but that God would strengthen us. That's what we desperately need. And it shows just a God-centered view of life. A God-centered view of what it means to live the Christian life. God's going to have to be the one that awakens you and that awakens me from our spiritual lethargy. From the nonchalant way in which we live the Christian life so often. He's going to have to strengthen us to live godly, grace-centered lives so that we would care less about what the world has to offer us. He's going to have to be the one who enables us to endure and grants us a constant, joyful life in the midst of of the hardships that we're facing, in the midst of our health declining, the economy falling to pieces, in the midst of all sorts of disappointment and heartache that we experience in our relationships. Paul knows this, and he prays that we will know His will, that we will know His will, and that we will be strengthened and enabled to endure. Here's the last thing he brings to us. The final thing that he prays about is that the Colossians and that we ourselves would be thankful people. Right? That we would be thankful people for the work of Jesus for us in the Gospel. That we would, that we would actually treasure that. That's exactly what we need. You know, His, His grace is never going to become meaningful to us until we understand that He has given us that inheritance. An inheritance that can, that can never rust out on us. That we begin to take great delight in the fact that He has qualified us to lay hold of that eternal inheritance. That, that He's done the work of delivering us out of hell. 
and out of darkness and out of condemnation and out of hopelessness. Grace becomes meaningful when you realize what He saved us from. Listen, there's a sense in which He has saved us from Himself. He he has saved us from the justice that you deserve and that I deserve for our sin, for rebelling against Him. God cannot be God unless He's going to punish our sin. That's not a God. That's an unjust God. If God's going to be just, He must punish our rebellion. He must punish our indifference to us. If there's no justice in God, then He's not God at all. And the fact of the matter is this. We discover that in the Gospel, it's God who takes that wrath for us. He suffers it for us. And we don't cooperate with Him in delivering ourselves out of hell. We don't cooperate in that. We don't do that. It completely misses the point of Christianity to think that that's what we do. I can't find one place in Scripture, anywhere, in the Bible that suggests that we have some kind of inherent power or goodness or wisdom or whatever it is to work with God to work alongside God in pulling ourselves out of hell and gaining ourselves the inheritance that Paul talks about here. In fact, the idea that we do is something that Paul says is a different gospel altogether. That's what he's harping on in the letter to the Galatians. He says that that the gospel of I do some of the work, God does some of the work, and cooperating together to deliver myself out of hell and to accomplish heaven for myself is something that's so repugnant and so beyond the scope of the gospel that he wishes that anybody who preaches it would actually go out and emasculate themselves. That's how severe Paul takes it. The reason why, my friends, listen to this, the reason why Paul wants this Colossian church to have a flavor of thankfulness flowing through their lives is because he understands that it is God who has qualified them. He has done the work in qualifying them to have this this eternal inheritance that quite obviously others are not qualified to have. It's something that he gives to his people, that he gives to his people by his grace. The way we get out of, as Paul says here, the domain of darkness and get transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son is because He delivered us. He did the work. He qualified us. That's why we can sing in this church, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It was His grace that saved us. It was Him that took that initiative. You want to know what the cash value of that is for you? When you leave here, what that ought to do in your life? It ought to humble us right to the core. It ought to pour contempt on all our pride. It ought to make us the most gracious, loving, merciful, just people in the world. Passionate for God's glory. Because He's qualified us. He's delivered us out of darkness. He's brought us into His light. That will make us desirous for the well-being of our friends and even our enemies and our church and all the people in our lives. 
Because when we realize that all we deserve is hell and what we get is heaven and that all we deserve is condemnation but what we get is grace, it changes us in every facet of our lives. It makes us look more like Jesus. It kills your mentality that says, I deserve this or that. Or so-and-so owes me this or that. It gets rid of all of your bitterness and it gets rid of your grudge holding. Because if there's anyone in the world who had a right to hold a grudge, it's God. And if there's anybody he had a right to hold it against, it's against you and me. But instead of doing so, in the Gospel, what happens is that Jesus takes the darkness upon himself, which is a darkness that his people will never know. And he endured hell in order that we would get heaven. And he was condemned for us in order that we might be forgiven by Him. How can that not make you a thankful people? Paul prays that for these people. It's my prayer for you and for me as well. So as we go about the rest of the day, and about the rest of this week, let's pray along these lines. This prayer for ourselves and for this church. Let's pray together now. Jesus, we thank you for your word that shows us the kinds of things that we ought to be praying about and praying for. And when we look at Paul's life, we discover that he really truly loved you. He had come to seeing the glory. He's come to seeing your grace. And he wanted others to see it as well. Lord, We pray that we would see it here in our church. That you would work out these things, wisdom, understanding, a knowledge of your will, an attitude of thankfulness, power and strength to endure the persecutions that we undergo. Do this in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.